0: Hey, dear listeners, I want to hear about what you think about the show, what works and what doesn't, and what can be improved. So if you have a few minutes, fill out the SRB Podcast Listener Survey at srbpodcast.org. I want to know who's listening, why, and what you think is important to making the show the best it can be. So take a few minutes and fill out that survey. Thanks for your time. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Gillery. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. We have books on a variety of forms of Russian socialism, books on Russian anarchism, Russian liberalism, and Russian nationalism. Russian conservatism, however, has garnered almost no attention. Yet for the past two centuries, Russian conservative thought has been an active intellectual tradition. Russian conservatives have sought to adapt to the pressures of modernization and westernization and, more recently, globalization while preserving national identity and political and social stability. Russian conservatism has made an underappreciated contribution to Russian national identity, the ideology of Russian statehood, and Russia's social economic development. And you can see many of its legacies in today's Russia. So what is Russian conservatism? How have conservative thinkers responded to social, economic, and political change? I turn to Paul Robinson for some answers. Paul Robinson is Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. He is the author and editor of numerous works on Russian and Soviet history, including Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, Supreme Commander of the Russian Army. He's the author of Russian Conservatism published by Northern Illinois University Press. Here's Paul Robinson. So I, I thought we'd start by just, um, you know, you have this new book, Russian Conservatism, um, which, which I think is, is, a, is a great topic to, to discuss and, and write about and research. So I thought we'd start by just having you introduce yourself.
1: Yes, uh, my name is Paul Robinson. I'm a professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Um, I specialize in in Russian Soviet history, but also um, I've written about military history, military ethics, and and to some degree I also write about contemporary affairs as well. So um, a fairly sort of broad set of interests.
0: And and what brought you to, to study and write a book about Russian conservatism?
1: To be honest, the idea wasn't mine. It was suggested to me by... A publisher, but it was one of those suggestions which made immediate sense once someone had made it. So I sort of pretended to think about it for about a day <laughs> before I said, Yeah, sure, but well, you're sure I'll, I'll write that. But actually, the moment it was suggested to me, I knew, Yeah, that's a great idea. I had written a little bit about um, contemporary Russian political ideology before, but just for popular magazines. Um, and I had always thought it, it was something which needed uh, deeper analysis, particularly because it struck me that so much which is written about Russia today and and about the political ideology of what people call the the Putin regime is taken out of any historical context. uh, And people come to really quite crazy conclusions because they don't have the the necessary uh, background. So it struck me that this would be uh, a very important book for for two reasons. First, because historically, conservatism has played a very important role in, in Russian life. And therefore, if you want to understand, say, imperial Russia, then I think you need to, to study conservatism a bit. And, and Historians on the whole have, have rather neglected it. And secondly, because of the so-called conservative turn in, in Russian politics in, in more recent years, um, which, as I said, I don't think is always very well um, understood and is often placed in a very, very poor context. So by bringing together the whole history of Russian conservatism from sort of as early as we can trace it as a definable political ideology and taking it through... Not just imperial times, but also emigration Soviet period into today, when when one could achieve um, you know, a, a more balanced view of Russian history and, and Russian society today.
0: When you even talk about the idea of a Russian conservatism, because you know there's a long tradition of looking at this in you know Western Europe, in particular states, and in the United States, of course, and in other places, um, but you don't surprisingly you don't see we don't have a lot of serious thinking about a term like conservatism in russia um do you have some trouble even getting people to accept that there is a russian tradition of conservatism
1: that's um i wouldn't say they do but i i would say that it's not well understood i think it, it's sort of understood that russia has had you know mixed many conservatives and time has been often a very conservative society but there is very little knowledge of, of what it means in philosophical terms um because historians tended to neglect it until very recently because we tend to be sort of teleological to use a fancy word you know we, we, we're geared towards some end some objective and the objective you know certainly in my youth was always understanding communism and, and how it was that the russian revolution came about and, and, and uh, russia became a communist society and and for that conservative ideas really weren't very interesting or useful instead people preferred to concentrate on studies of of socialism populism communism um, and so on and and the the conservatives just got written out of the picture as sort of a historical dead end and um also i think on the whole western academics of leaned slightly left and, and therefore probably didn't really want to spend their time studying people they didn't like very much so for these reasons, um, there really wasn't a lot of study of it. The, the one or two books came out every now and again, but the result was, um, a general neglect, which, um, needs correcting, I think, because, you know, we have this sort of perception of imperial Russia intellectuals as all being alienated from the regime and leaning leftwards, but obviously that, that actually wasn't the case.
0: I also get the, you know, this is just kind of a a gut impression that in in Russia's case, we don't, when we want to talk about ideologies or thought that is related, you know, that we would identify as conservatism, we, people tend to just think of it in terms of nationalism and nationalism stands in for conservatism. Do you, what do you think of that?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that's largely true, um, although there's something to it in the sense that Russian conservatism from the very beginning has been about developing Russian society in, in what you might call an organic fashion, let's just say in a way in keeping with Russian national traditions and identities. So that is inherently, you might say, nationalistic. And and also when you're thinking about what is organic for Russia, that tends to be defined in terms of not being the West, right? So so that there, so therefore there, there is an inherent link between Russian conservatism and uh, you might say anti-Westernism, not necessarily at being anti-the West, but being anti-Westernization, slapping down Western models on, onto Russian society without uh, thinking of whether they're suitable. So in that sense, Russian conservatism is uh, essentially a cultural project as much as it is as it is a political project, um, and it is uh, related to nationalism. The thing is, though, nationalism in, in, in Russia has many meanings uh, and so when you people say are oh, these conservatives are nationalist they 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 tend to have a very mistaken view of what that actually means they think for instance that means ethno national nationalism you know russia for the russians but in fact that's actually a really a very much a minority trend even within russian conservatism um, russian conservatism nationalism is generally not of a um ethno nationalist sort and therefore tends to be rather misunderstood
0: how do you understand conservatism? How do you define it? What are some of its uh, main qualities in, in the Russian context?
1: I define it as a philosophy of organic change. So, so to give a, an example of, of what that means, about the earliest book, which I cite in, in, in my own book, is, is one written in 1803 by Admiral Alexander Shishkov, which had a title something like, um, the older new styles in, in, in the Russian language. And they were debating at the time how you could build and create a, a Russian literature because they didn't think they had a, had a great literature yet. And and many people, uh, such as Nikolai Karamzin, for instance, um, favoured what they call a new style, which was to some degree um, modelled on uh, Western, particularly French literature. Uh, and and Shishkov, opposed to this, saying, no, we should build our, our literature on Slavonic roots. This is what he called the old stuff. The thing, though, about the old style, is it wasn't actually old. No one actually wrote in that way. This was really a sort of different type of new. It was trying to create a literature um, in a way which was, I might say, organic, which was built on uh, Russian roots rather than copied from the West. So conservatism of this sort was not trying to turn the clock back, nor was it trying to stop progress. In fact, it was very much trying to create, but to create and move forward in a way which is in keeping with uh, national identity, national traditions, uh, and national culture. And that's what I therefore call organic change. And, and essentially, therefore, that is what one sees throughout the history of Russian conservatism. There are relatively few, there are one or two exceptions, but there are relatively few conservative philosophers who really are pro-status quo and, and want to keep things they are and, and not want to move forward. Most do actually, um, believe in progress and, and want to move forward, but they, they want to do so in a way which um, they consider to be um, national.
0: This is one of the things that that struck me in your discussion. I started thinking about the, the temporal orientation of Russian conservatism. So unlike, say, liberalism or socialism, it's not so much future-oriented, so it doesn't really posit, at least in my reading, uh, an idealistic future. Um, so it's not necessarily ends driven it seems to me more about focused on the on process on on the means and it's trying to manage the means of change rather than the what the the end result will be
1: yes i hadn't actually i hadn't actually thought of it in that terms but i think that's actually a very good um description of it um yes uh many of these conservatives would would have problems saying what would be your ideal ends end state that's not really no, it's not really necessarily the term in which they think, but they, they are concerned with managing change. In fact, I think one of the um, English language philosophers um, I quote in my sort of theoretical discussion of conservatism at the beginning uh, describes conservatism very much in, in those terms as a fact being um, not about opposing change, but being about managing change. So you, you can view conservatism as a response in Russia's case to these twin processes of modernization and Westernization. And therefore what they're concerned with is how do we modernize without at the same time completely losing ourselves and ceasing to, to be who we are? And how do we modernize while at the same time avoiding the really negative disruptions which can come from it? Uh, in particular, of course, you know, the revolution. So, so, how, so, so how can we modernize in, in a stable orderly way and that's really the, the, what they're concerned with and that's the, the issue they're trying to deal with. The
0: the other thing that strikes me too about the, your discussion is, I mean, you, you used the word a few moments ago, organic. Um, organic, you know, change coming organically from the traditions of, of Russian society. But the, the in addition to that is the conception of Russian society, both state and society, as part of an organic body. You know, so if, if one part of the body is, you know, disrupted, then that affects the entire whole of the body. So how does, talk a bit about this understanding of the, you know, the the society and the state as this you know this body metaphor
1: yes um it it has a number of, of of interesting uh consequences um it would imply for instance that you government should be on behalf of the whole body rather than um be seen in the way that for instance classical liberal philosophy would view it as being simply um the means by which Competing interests resolve their differences, right? That that you therefore uh, and therefore that requires some form of government which, which stands above classes and, and, and stands above uh, societal divisions and can relate directly to everybody and embody the the entire nation. And this, of course, then leads to a certain preference for, for autocratic government because um, only you know on, only the autocrat can really embody the nation as a whole. Um, and that is best done through some direct mechanism, rather than through uh, intervening institutions such as political parties, which which will tend to therefore to, to um, lead to government by narrow interests. Um, there are other things which which an organic um, metaphor can uh, lead you to conclude. For instance, um, it is the case that. Um, you know, all organisms are essentially different, so therefore, this le- the the organic idea would would lead to the idea that new nations can't really be compared with other nations, and they need to develop in their own way. They also need to develop gradually. You don't, apart from maybe some you know, extreme bamboo plants or something. On the whole, organisms, plants, whatever, they don't grow instantaneously. You you don't suddenly you don't suddenly change from um, you know being uh, A young cow to being a large cow it's a very gradual process and this is therefore the way you you, as a society ought to develop as well And at the same time you shouldn't be supplanting or grafting other organisms onto your organism because they're they're alien to you if if you put one organism and plant it on the another organism it's not going to help the original organism to have a different type of plant growing on it so so this means that you should develop it in, in your own way Um, Socially, it tends to lead to um, an idea of um, differentiation in the sense that, you know, within organisms, um, everybody, everything has its own place, you know. There's a heart, there's a lung, there's a a brain. You know, we're not, the different parts of your body serve different functions and therefore are different. And, you know, the brain can't suddenly decide it really wants to be the heart and and vice versa. And therefore, in, in a social system, you know different people have different functions uh and um there is some natural hierarchy and natural division of labor um rather than everybody just being a homogeneous uh, mass so these sort of ideas tend to develop out of the organic
0: metaphor well another interesting thing that i and you you say this repeatedly in the beginning of the book and it kind of goes throughout um and that is it a lot of russian conservatism is is trying to grapple with the problem of the russian state and, and particularly the weakness of the autocrat and and the questions of governance how do you as you said like every organ has a place in the body so how do you manage the order of the body um so how do, how do conservatives in russia view autocracy and and the role of the state
1: so russian conservatives have have generally speaking been uh fairly statist they, they they believe in a, a strong a centralized state um but i think you need to draw a, a slight difference between what you might call state or official conservatism or sometimes called bureaucratic conservatism and russians sometimes call this conservatism um, so this is the conservatism of the russian state which puts state interests above all else and is really concerned with the stability and security of the state and that, that's what, what you have on one hand and then on the other hand you might have what i call philosophical Conservatism, which is slightly different. Um, philosophical conservatives uh, share the, the belief in a, a strong um, centralized state and therefore in autocracy, but they would view it rather differently than perhaps you know, state conservatism would. Autocracy literally means rule by one person. It therefore simply tells you something about the locus of power, where power rests, but it doesn't tell you anything about how much power the autocrat should have, or what things he or she should have power over. And in the eyes of Russian um, philosophical conservatives, that power should be very limited. Um, and the sort of principle was that established by Konstantin Aksakov in a famous memo in 1855 to Tsar Alexander II, in which he said the principle should be mutual non interference between the state and the people. So the people don't interfere in, in in what the autocrat does. The autocrat is an autocrat. If he has responsibility over something, then he's in charge. At the same time, though, no, the autocrat doesn't interfere in, in the lives of the people. In, in most of the day-to-day running of their affairs, it's left to them. So therefore, in conservative thought, you you often have a combination of a belief in a strong centralized state and some form of, of local autonomy local self-government. And you have in the late 19th century, writers like um, Sergei Sharapov, uh, Leftik Amira of actually sort of drawing up constitutional proposals for how this could be done. And in the late 20th century, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn um, wrote a little book outlining how he thought this could operate. Um, so therefore, autocracy is centralized but limited government.
0: Does, does this, is this in relation to the the, where this I, these ideas come from is this in relation to the problem of Russian governance in terms of it governing a you know very large geographical space and then of course a multi ethnic empire that you you have a centralizing state but at the same time you a centralizing state let alone an autocrat can't manage such a large entity so the idea is to you know give certain local autonomy for governance as long as they have fealty to the center.
1: Yes. I mean, I think that, that, that is partly it. Uh, one of the real problems Russia has had um, is that despite all the talk about you know, the strong Russian state, in reality, it, it's historically been fairly weak compared with, say, Western European states, um, have, have a great deal of difficulty in, in controlling what happens in these you know, vast spaces as a result of which um, local authority can often be uh, rather abusive. And that leads to a tendency to look to, to the center, to the Tsar or, or to Stalin or, or, or to Putin, uh, as the only person who can protect your interests. And that leads, therefore, to, to a preference for a, a very strong person um, in the middle. But at the same time, um it's just as you say it's not it's not possible for that person to, to um to control everything which is going on and therefore um there needs to be some form of devolution. But there's a little bit more um going on there because it in not really in state um conservatism, but in, in philosophical conservatism, there's also a strong moral sense that there are moral reasons why autocracy should be limited um conservatism in russia is strongly uh, connected with orthodoxy because if you're asking you know what is organic about russia what marks russia out as a nation then the general answer tends to be orthodoxy and therefore the czar is meant to be an, an orthodox czar. so he is meant to be uh, limited by religion by morality um, and in some later versions also by law. Um, and in particular, it is necessary to, um, in philosophical terms, and to, to respect you know, the inner freedom of individuals, that, that sort of ability to be who they are and to act in a, in a moral way in, in accordance to their conscience, which therefore cannot be done if the state is dictating everything they have to do. Um, this sort will of intrude upon um, this inner freedom which is valued extremely highly. So therefore, while supporting some forms of authoritarian government, um, Russian conservative philosophers have tended to be anti-totalitarian, because totalitarianism will intrude upon people's inner freedom.
0: I am Christian Basar, and I've been studying Russia for almost a decade. I listen to Sean's Russia blog because Russia is important to understand in a nuanced and educated manner, and the SRB podcast is a crucial contribution in this area. Спасибо большое и Pro прослушивания. Now, Russian conservatism emerges in the early part of the 19th century, in in many respects, alongside conservatism in the the Western European continent, which is in the West. It's mostly a response to the French Revolution. Russian conservatism is is also, to some extent, a response to the the French Revolution. and it emerges during the reign of Alexander the First. So what is the, the kind of historical context for, for Russian conservatism's emergence as a philo- ph- uh, philosophy and ideology?
1: Well, as you say, the um, influence of the uh, French Revolution is important. And in, in, in that sense, Russian conservatism was following um, a European trend, uh, connected to which was a reaction against uh, Enlightenment thought and this idea that you can simply uh, draw up uh, sort of rational, abstract ideals of, of how um, a state should operate and, and, and plump them down according to, to, to reason, um, ignoring uh, local realities or traditions and, and history and, and culture and religion and that kind of thing. So um, conservatism builds on, on this anti-react- anti-enlightenment thought, um, which then sort of has its feels justified in some degree by the um, terrible results of of the French Revolution uh, as they are seen. Um, And uh, this of course has its effect on uh, Russian thinkers who um, around the turn of the uh, 18th, 19th century are are well-versed in in Western philosophy, but it's particularly uh, German philosophy, uh, which has uh, an influence on them, romanticism and and idealism, people like Hegel uh, and um, Schelling, and they they take uh, from uh, the Germans this idea that, well, a couple of ideas. First, this idea that if you are to be a historic nation, you you have to make some contribution to, to wider humanity. And then the idea that the only way you can make a contribution to wider humanity is by developing what is unique about your own national culture so this sort of german um thinking um is is adopted by early russian conservatism but it's added a certain additional dimension which western european conservatism doesn't have have which is the uh reaction to the process of westernization begun by peter the great so russian conservatives are different from Western conservatives in that they're, they're reacting against um, this perception that their national identity and culture is being taken over by some alien um, uh, form, which they admire greatly, but at the same time, they they, they fear a little bit. So um, this uh, reaction um, to Westernization comes in as a form of sort of uh, anti Um You know, this, this uh, Gala... Uh, Gallimania, which supposedly, you know, um, was quite prevalent in the Russian aristocracy of the late 18th century. Um, Russian conservatives are are reacting to that. And of course, the French Revolution and then the Napoleonic invasion gives extra impetus to um, why you should want to react against uh, all things uh, uh, French and start building a specifically Russian national culture. So that's really where I think it's coming from.
0: You know, in each of your chapters, you you go through the history of Russia, um, and you're dealing with political conservatism, cultural conservatism, and socioeconomic economic conservativism. And each chapter, as you're going through the 19th and 20th century, um, so just speaking of the 19th century, what are the main kind of threads that go throughout the century, and what kind of what kind of problems are they trying to address in the Russian conservative thought?
1: Okay, so if we begin at the, the first of those, which is cultural conservatism, the, the main thing they're trying to do is, is to define what Russia is. So if you're to have organic change, if you're going to seek to modernize on the basis of your own national identity and culture, you have to define what it is to begin with. And that is something which Russian thinkers found very difficult. So. The first task of Russian conservatism was to try to identify what was Russia's distinct um, characteristics, which um, could then form the basis of some form of organic uh, change in the future. And this is um, what then leads to the debate between the the, the Slavophiles and and the the Westernizers, of course. Uh, The Slavophiles see uh, the roots of Russian culture lying in, in orthodoxy. This then leads to later developments. Um, people like uh, Dostoevsky and then Danilevsky and Vyontaev and, and so on building uh, on these ideas, but taking them in a slightly uh, a different direction. The second um, area, which would be uh, political conservatism, is, is primarily concerned with the nature of, and, and form of, of the Russian state and, and uh, how you can have some form of state uh, which uh, stands above the people, which maintains this strong central power which Russia is seen as needed, but at the same time will uh, respect uh, the uh, freedom um, of of the people. Um, And then, uh, finally, you have social economic issues. These tend to be rather secondary in, in Russian conservative thinking um nonetheless they do um address them uh initially the main thing is is, is serfdom and how you you deal with serfdom and there's divisions there. some people are against emancipating the serfs others are, are in favor of emancipating the serfs and then once the serfs have been emancipating emancipated then the issue becomes you know how how do we deal with this now should, uh, what what is the new structure of economy that uh russia should have do we uh Go for industrialization and capitalism, or or, or don't we? And and again, there's a a lot of divisions on here. But on the whole, Russian conservative thinkers tended to be rather opposed to the uh, specific programs of industrialization put forward um, under Alexander III and Nicholas II and uh, Bitter's program of industrial expansion, and instead argued for more um, bottom up um, uh, modernization in which you Didn't uh, industrialize at the expense of the peasantry, but rather tried to enrich enrich the peasantry and thereby um, increase demand within the economy and and build up in, in that way.
0: How did how did Russian conservatism respond to the the rise of and consolidation of nation states in Europe in the mid 19th century and its multi ethnic character and empire? How did it deal with these questions of nations? I'm not speaking of nationalism. I'm mostly the nation state versus multi-ethnic empire.
1: Yes. Well, the the Russian state itself was always um, fairly – I'm going to put this – fairly reluctant to go down the ethno national route. Now, it, it happens to a certain degree under Alexander III and Nicholas II, um, but only to a certain degree. On the whole, the, the view of the Russian state has always been that what makes Russia a state is the state, right? So, so uh, it, it, it's loyalty to, to the dynasty or the Communist Party or, or, or to Putin, or whatever, right? So, so, so therefore... Um, Russification, though it did happen a little bit at the end of the 19th century, generally not what the state preferred. Now, there were some Russians, conservatives, who did move in that direction. Um, Mikhail Katkov is one who was commonly uh, cited, but many others, um, went in, in a somewhat different um, direction. Um, and you know, continued to to view Russia as a uh, founded on Orthodoxy rather than on um, ethnicity, um, and then towards the end of the 19th century, you begin to get um, what sort of eventually develops into Eurasianism in the early 20th century, which is sort of this idea that actually, you know, Russia is a sort of Eastern country too, and and you start getting interested in 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 sort of old folklore and, and ideas of, of Russia's Eastern roots and connections coming in. Um, and then in, in the 20th century, Eurasianism takes that in a whole different direction and says, you know, Russia is, well, you might say not so much Russia, but the lands of the former Russian Empire and, and later then of the Soviet Union form a natural organic whole, uh, and therefore um, they are one. Right, uh, 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 and so that's uh, I'd say ethno nationalism, the idea of Russia as a, as, a, as a nation state, is accepted by some, but it, it's rather a minority position, even among Russian conservatives, and that's remains true to this day. I think.
0: Um, how did how did Russian conservatives, you know, given the the you know pushback and and desire to manage change and avoid mass disruption and breaks, historical breaks. How did Russian conservatives confront, say, the 1905 revolution in 1917 and, of course, the revolutionary transformations of the early Soviet state?
1: 1905 caused a certain problem for Russian conservatives because they didn't know whether they should accept the new constitutional system established after the october manifesto or not uh, on the one hand you know Tsar had proclaimed it and therefore they felt duty bound to to accept it on the other hand they, they didn't like it very much and um so that, that put them in, in a little bit of a bind and you get um a slightly new phenomenon developing in this period which would be sort of far right parties uh you know the russian people and so on but To what extent they could really be called conservative is is, is somewhat debatable. As for 1917, initially conservatives did not react amazingly negatively to the overthrow of the Tsar because the um, Tsar had been thoroughly discredited in the eyes even of conservatives because of the management of the war system and all these crazy conspiracy theories about the the inner German and so on, really, you know, uh, uh, the Germans are running the system. and therefore, when, when the Tsar was overthrown, I think many could have thought that, you know, well, this will help us fight the war better and, 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 and it's maybe not such a bad thing. Uh, and no one was really willing to come to defense of Nicholas II. But obviously they, they very rapidly, um, realized that this was not, you know, going to be very good for them. Um, <laughs> but, but by that point, they'd been thoroughly sidelined and, um, all they, all they could do really was, um, Either go into exile or, or or join you know the white opposition eventually in the in the, um, in the civil war, but in, the white generals, of course, largely shunted conservatives uh, to one side and um, tried to avoid having any specific uh, um, political philosophy. But basically, conservatism went into into exile.
0: But nevertheless, you know, as you as you show, conservatism even after nineteen seventeen and throughout the Soviet period it maintains a, a, a Soviet flavor, right? Conservatism continues, but with a Soviet flavor. So you have a kind of, in a way, uh, a continuation and a split. Whereas the old conservatism of the pre-revolutionary period mostly goes into exile and develops in reaction to the Soviet system and then internally to the Soviet within the Soviet Union. So uh, talk about these two conservativisms and was it, how did they inter- ironically intersect?
1: I don't think initially there was much intersection insofar as um, there was any intersection in the early 20s, you get, um, which I talk about briefly in the book, you you get this development of of national Bolshevism in in exile, which is associated with the Siena movement. And uh, national Bolshevism is um, briefly tolerated within within the Soviet Union under Lenin for for two or three years. Um, And so you, you get... Some sort of, uh, trickling back into the Soviet Union of the idea that a Bolshevism will, um, morph over time into a, um, nationalistic phenomenon. And, and you can have a combination of communism, um, and nationalism. But I'd say, it, say, um, although that is actually more or less to some degree what happens, it happens more because of domestic Soviet reasons than because of some influence of, uh, emigre philosophy, as Soviet um, conservatism develops um, for a number of reasons. Uh, first, there's a sort of reaction to the inevitable um, chaos which is produced by, particularly by Stalin's, you know, collectivization and industrialization, which produces a lot of social problems, you know, but there's a huge number of, of um, orphans floating around the place. Uh, there's a lot of crime there's a lot of disorder um, and, and so naturally uh, there's a there's a sense and many of those in authority but you know maybe we need to uh, you know, we need to think twice about uh, family values or whatever right and, and maybe, maybe 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 we need a little bit of discipline in our society after all and and, and uh, it, it, perhaps law and order aren't such a bad thing so, so these sort of um, ideas begin to, to uh, uh Gain strength in Soviet society. And then, of course, as the threat of war comes, then the state starts thinking, well, you know, maybe um, a bit of nationalism isn't, isn't such a bad thing after all. Perhaps people aren't going to fight for communism, but, you know, they might fight for Mother Russia. And, and, of course, particularly in the Second World War, you know, you then get started creating all these sort of medals, Order of Suvorov, and Order of Kutuzov, and, and suddenly Peter the Great is is a great man again. And, and so all these imperial uh, symbols. Um, come back in so there's that process goes in and then post-stalin you even get other processes coming in there's a, a sort of environmental movement begins to to uh, appear in, in the 1950s 1960s and you get um, people like the, the village prose authors who begin to lament the effect which soviet society has had soviet industrialization has had on the russian um, village and you get uh, these really massive uh, Soviet organizations for uh, preserving historical and cultural monuments, which have millions of members, and start restoring churches and palaces and, and, and other things. Um, um, so all those things sort of slowly begin to, to coalesce uh, within the Soviet Union. Um, there's one other thing as well, which develops, which is a particularly Soviet form of conservatism, which is. Um, a conservatism which, you know, looks back to the Soviet in economic and social model, uh, and says that, you know, what the Soviet Union brought us was, you know, at least we, we had some degree of equality, we had a welfare state, you know, we, we had decent education, we had free healthcare, uh, and so it, it creates in the minds of of even Post-Soviet people, a sort of certain ideal to which they look back and which they want to recreate. So that 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 builds into what we nowadays we call left conservatism, which is which is quite strong.
0: And and what about in exile?
1: Yeah, in exile, uh, people move in in a number of, of, of different directions. um uh, uh, sort of come back out of the woodwork. Uh, they they kept their mouth shut, more or less shut during the civil war, but they come back out of the, out of the woodwork in exile, but don't really get a, a a lot of support um in large part because people think that it's probably not going to be very popular back home and therefore probably not a, not, not a good idea to push this too far so e- even many devoted monarchists uh, prefer um to, to keep quiet about it some people uh move towards fascism and you do get um a, a degree of, of, of radicalization but outside of manchuria in the emigre community uh, there are actually relatively uh, few uh, russian uh, fascists then you, you get the eurasians um who push things in an entirely new direction and and come up with this idea of, of um russia being the soviet union being sort of successor of, of the russian empire and being um you know the revolution is in some way having Provided an opportunity to to uh, um, recast the Russian people and revive their their moral sense um, um, as a Eurasian people, which has a global role combating imperialism and colonialism and, and stuff like that. And then you you have um, uh, other philosophers who um, don't go down that particular road, um, but become Rather have become rather disenchanted people of a somewhat previously somewhat liberal um, orientation who have become very disenchanted uh, with liberalism and democracy and what what they've seen as its results. Um, and you you get someone for instance like Nikolai Berdyaev who writes this book in, in one thousand, nine hundred and eighteen, um, the philosophy of inequality where you can pretty much Guess the contents from the title, <laughs> you know. But but all this stuff about equality is a is a fairly bad thing. And look look what it, look where it got us. And uh, and um, also of course as the person of uh, Ivan um who you know sort of combines a whole bunch of paradoxical positions. You know uh, um, some authoritarianism with, with some liberalism, with some some monarchism, but some non predetermination and, and a whole bunch of things. Um, trying somehow to 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 synthesize um, some sort of third way between liberalism and totalitarianism.
0: Now, currently uh, we're, we're watching the unfolding of the Putin's government putting forward and reforming the cons- Russian constitution, the whole question of uh, 2024, what happens when Putin's um, term runs out. And from what we're seeing coming out of Russia, uh, so far, in the discussion around the various proposals for amendments to the constitution, it seems to be really fairly influenced by the Russian conservative tradition. Um, at least it seems to me. So, how do you understand, uh, you know, the constitution as you're as you're watching it? Because I know you're you're commenting on this um, in light of Russian conservatism since the end of the Soviet Union.
1: Yes, what what's happened has been quite interesting, Uh, Putin made this announcement saying we're going to um, amend the Constitution. And initially, what he was proposing appeared to be reasonably um, radical in the sense that he he was suggesting a a transfer of the power from the uh, president to the State Duma, in particular the ability to choose the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. When the actual details of the proposal came out, it turned out it was actually rather less than people um, had thought it would be. Um, and really was just a very, some minor tinkering with the system, by and large. But the interesting thing to me was that he sort of opened it, Putin opened it up to general discussion. He said, you know, I'm making this commission to look at these proposals and the commission will accept ideas. Right? And then all hundreds of ideas flowed in and most of them were of a, or at least the ones we sort of hear about were of a, a you might say, fairly conservative, um, sort. And the, some of these have now, uh, been adopted, um, and have been, um, are being put to the Duma for approval. For instance, a, a mention of, 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 God in the preamble to the Constitution, um, a, a statement that, uh, the modern Russian Federation is the successor of previous, uh, Russian states, in other words, of the Soviet Union and of Imperial Russia, and therefore we're all part of one historical continuity. Um, A a statement about uh, marriage being between uh, men and women, and a a little phrase which calls the the Russian people the Ruski Narod, um, the state forming people. Um, Although that, at the same time, the constitution will still keep the previous wording which says, talks about it. Being the state of the uh, multinational Russkiy okay? narod, but anyway, this, this, this mention of the Russkiy narod is, is, is a sort of nod in the direction of ethnic nationalism. Uh, all of the, these one changes, which I've just mentioned, are of really symbolic nature, so they don't really affect the tinkering with this, the structure which uh, Putin had proposed. But what I find interesting about it is that these weren't in the original set of propositions Putin put forward, so they're obviously not sort of the things which are top in his mind about what I what I want to do and what should be done. But the moment he opened it up to to Russian society, all these ideas start start flooding in, and that that suggests to me that in fact the, the Russian society is, is rather more conservative in its orientation than is the Russian state, at least in these sort of cultural terms, and. Um, the Russian state is happy to, um, you know, make some concessions to, to this conservative mood in it, but in a sort of symbolic way, right? Yeah, okay, we'll mention God, okay? Okay, we'll mention the Ruski Narod, but it's not actually gonna, but in a rather sort of mealy mouthed sort of way, right? We'll, we'll, we'll say it's for state forming people, but we won't say it's the actual, but it's, a state of the russian people and so on um uh, and therefore you, you you get a dynamic there which, which suggests to me that if you were to um, democratize russian war to have more you know, truly competitive elections and more sort of input from society in into the political process it, it would probably be rather more conservative than it is in fact i say in my book that you know um, a more democratic russia might well be a more Conservative Russia, and I think what what we've seen in the dynamic of these constitutional reforms um, possibly
0: reflects that. Do you get a sense that the way that uh, the changes to the organization of the state and its relationship to society is it part of that tradition of seeing? the 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 nature of the rush of russian society as an organic body do you do you see this continuing or has that idea not persisted
1: no i think i think it has persisted you can you can see it in for instance the, the relationship between the state and civil society organizations and we tend to think of civil society organizations in, in the west as, as ones which are associated with you know defense of human rights and so on and so forth but that, that's a very narrow um understanding of of civil of of civil society and civil society encompasses much much more than that um it encompasses large numbers of charitable organizations religious organizations um almost anything which is operating inside of the um direct control of of the state and um putin and and the russian state have actually tried to um to build relations uh, with civil society and to, to some degree bring them within government, and this, like a few years ago, you had the creation of these things called the, the public, the public chambers, for instance, which were meant to um, provide a means through which you know, civil society organisations could um, work with government to uh, promote common goals, and that's therefore this sort of image. Uh, of the relationship between governments and civil society, it does re- sort of reflect this idea that you know the nation is is an organic whole. It, it's it's you know we we encourage people to to do charitable work. We we encourage them to to do things outside the control of the state. We 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 want civil society to to be active and doing things, but we want it to be doing it. In coordination of us but towards the same goals you know the state and civil society should be one right uh this sort of fits with the um orthodox concept of symphony which is um how the church and the state operate together that they are distinct the, the, the secular matters the running of of, of of day-to-day life that that's the role of the state saving of souls that's the role of the church, and the two should stay out of each other. The church stays out of the state, the state stays out of uh, out of moral questions and the saving of souls. But at the same time, this is somewhat different than separation of church and state in liberal theory, because they're seen as nonetheless having common desires and cooperating with each other and helping each other. Okay? So, although the state butts out of moral issues, it nonetheless Helps the church in that regard. And similarly, where the, the church butts out of secular issues, it nonetheless works um, with the state um, and supports the state um, as sort of God's authority on earth. And, and, and that's sort of this understanding of how uh, the state and non state organizations work together, I think, is very much how, how it's seen.
0: And finally, um, you're an avid blogger. Uh, about contemporary Russia, what's happening in the now, and 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 you also review a lot of books. It's quite impressive how many books you review uh, on your blog. Um, so, w- what is your approach? And and as somebody who's commenting on, you know, even the how the constitution is unfolding, but you're also con- you comment a lot on how the Western media treats Russia and 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 understands it so uh, what is your approach to to news coming out of Russia and what do you want your readers to to take from your kind of commentary?
1: that's a that's a good question um, my 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 approach is to try to you know, read broadly from a a variety of different perspectives i I you know uh, um, I think there's there's a tendency that some people would say say become disenchanted with a lot of the rubbish they would read about russia in in, in the media and and as you know some people say take the red pill and and (laughs) decide that everything in the mainstream media is therefore rubbish and i'm going to go all the other way right Uh, and believe that you know everything in the west is rubbish um you know i i think that's a mistake but at the same time i think you need to to treat a lot of what you read and coming out of all parties with a great deal of of, of skepticism and and open mind And, and the only Possible approach is to to read as widely as you can from as broad a number of perspectives as you can. So if, if you look at my blog on the right, there's a list of other websites which talk about Russia, and some of them are, you know, um, very anti-Putin regime, and you might call them even Russophobic, and uh, whereas others are sort of slightly red pilly and, and very um very sort of pro-Putin, um, and then there's others in the middle. And I think the only way you can um, Really tackle this is to bear in mind the biases of all these people and um, try and read them all and triangulate um, between them, and then beyond that, go back and look at the actual evidence. Don't don't accept the interpretations you're given at face value. Go back as much as you can to 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 the raw data and decide. Um, for yourself um so um that's really my approach and that's what i would encourage people to do so um you know um don't uh, say you know um the mainstream media is horribly biased which Richard it, it often is so i'm not going to read it anymore um i'm just going to look at rt uh, that would be a mistake but simply don't say rt's biased so i'm never going to look at rt i mean that, that that's to my mind um equally foolish and there is you know the, the the state of Russian studies um, is quite varied. I'd say there is a lot of good stuff out there. there there's some very good journalists. There's some very good um, academic works coming out. You you publish interviews about a lot of them on your um, on your podcast. Um, so so there's a lot of good material out. There, um, there is unfortunately an awful lot of garbage, uh, <laughs> and. Um, what, what my blog has sort of become has been a, an effort to um, um disparage the garbage you might say um which sometimes i wonder if maybe i should be publicizing the good more and, and not disparaging the, the garbage less but um i think you know people really should um calm down a little bit about russia and, and, and start um examine their own prejudices about russia and and, and think more, more rationally about it, and that's really what I'm trying to, to get people to do through my blog.
0: That was Paul Robinson, a professor of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa. He is the author and editor of numerous works on Russian and Soviet history, including Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, Supreme Commander of the Russian Army. His new book is Russian Conservatism, published by Northern Illinois University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make you can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org as always i want to thank my high excellencies high wellborns and noblenesses for your continued patronage you can find past shows on itunes and soundcloud or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well until next time bye <laughs>
2: To a pound get a spoon Scoop the eye From a fly flying backwards Take the jaws And the paws off a coon Take your time I ain't life for good cooking Cause the rest of this mess ain't good looking Take the fleas from the knees of a demon Tell your pals and gals will come straight To the bow They make wine from the spine and they build on It's a test for the best for who stays. At the feast with the beast of the mouth bows. Brush your teeth with a piece of a goose toenail. At the death, steal the breath of a drunken jail. Pull a stand off your friend with a razor blade. In tonight, change tomorrow and bring back yesterday. Take your hip, bite your lip, and shoot your mother-in-law. Put on your gorilla suit, drink some elbow soup, and have them all. Get it straight, don't be late. It's time for mad fun. Feast of the mouth.